I'm reading two passages from the Old Testament, the text that's in your bulletin and much of the eighth chapter, 1 Samuel, as well. In Judges 7 6, we find this simple and yet profound observation. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then in 1 Samuel 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king, and he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tithe of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tithe of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of the king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us. Early this next Wednesday morning, a strange and refreshing quiet will settle across the face of the land. One of the most highly contested and raucous election seasons in recent memory will have come to an end. More than usual, it seems the array of charges and countercharges and promises has been both complex and confusing, and there's been no place where we might hide from the attention of those who seek our votes. I went home late one afternoon this last week and asked Carla, did I miss anything? And she shrugged and said, well, Governor Snyder and Clint Eastwood called. (laughs) 
By Wednesday morning, you and I will have recorded our opinions about such weighty matters as who should be our next president and who's best qualified to sit on our state Supreme Court. We will have marked our ballots to register our views about what some apparently petulant issues as to whether a supermajority should be required to enact tax legislation and who gets to decide whether we build a bridge. Our legislatures who aren't civil engineers or businessmen, or our neighbors who aren't either. One of the benefits of having the right to vote is the stimulus that right provides us to think about government, to think about its form and its cost, its efficiency or inefficiency, and the scope of its responsibilities. And however we vote, we are all better off for the exercise of engaging in that kind of thought. One of the major areas of political tension among us as Americans relate to differing opinions among us about the balance between the responsibility of government on the one hand and the responsibility of the people on the other. Liberals tilt the scale in the favor of government. Conservatives push the needle in the direction of the populace. The passages that I just read from Judges and 1 Samuel describe a time of similar tension in ancient Israel. Some of you are aware that the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the books of the law in the Old Testament. And that part of the scriptures comes to an end with the declaration of certain promises and certain warnings from God himself. The promises are of great blessings to individuals and to their nation as well if they will honor God by keeping his law. The warnings given to individuals and to their nation are of the bad things that would befall him if they dishonor God by disobeying his law. The book of Judges is a part of the history in the Old Testament of the playing out of these blessings and these curses in the life of Israel. Like the rising and the falling of the tide, there's a rhythm that flows through the book of Judges. The ebbing and flowing of the tides of righteousness and disobedience with their consequence, blessing and punishment is encapsulated in a summary we find in the seventh chapter of the first judge. In that chapter we read, so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot him and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia, whom they served for eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer for his people, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, with the result that the land had rest for 40 years. Twelve times in the book of Judges, this motif is repeated. Twelve times the people turned away from the Lord. Twelve times enemies swarmed across their borders. Twelve times they cried out to the Lord. Twelve times he delivered them from their enemies. 
This dreary, repetitive litany spreads across 400 years of Hebrew history, each generation having to learn for itself the truth of God's law and the rich benefits of obedience. And finally, near the end of the stories of the judges, we find this tragic statement, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The implication of these words is that the people still didn't get it. They assumed that the chief reason for their national troubles had nothing to do with their individual responsibility before God and everything to do with the fact that they didn't have a strong central government. The sad observation in Judges 17 has two parts. The one sets forth the historical reality that the Hebrew monarchy had not yet been established, and for that reason there was no king in Israel at that time. The other describes the philosophical anarchy that characterized the age. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The morality of the time was relative. Right was determined by desire, not by law or principle. And it was a time of religious eclecticism, an age in which a man's beliefs and practices were pretty much a matter of his own invention. In fact, the next event recorded in Judges 17 involves a man who made up his own religion, cast a silver idol, and then hired a Levite to be his priest. Only the blind can fail to see the obvious parallels between the moral practices and religious beliefs of Israel at that time and those of America in ours. It was in this sad and decrepit time of Hebrew history that a lady named Hannah had her firstborn son. His name was Samuel. He became a great servant of God and was made by God the last of the Hebrew judges. In the waning days of his life, the people came to him and they demanded a king. In spite of the effectiveness of his leadership, in spite of his warnings that having a strong central government would become an enormous financial drain on the people's resources and change their national way of life, the people persisted. The immediate result was the coronation of Saul as the first king of Israel. The long-range result was the continuation of the ebbing and flowing of obedience and disobedience, of blessing and cursing, of prosperity and famine, of safety and incursion that drove the people to demand a king in the first place. They believed that having a king would solve their problems. Their nation would be secure and prosperous, and they will live happily ever after. The point they missed, the lesson they almost obviously refused to see, is that the key to national security and prosperity and contentment is not in having a strong centralized government, but in being faithful to the God who is the King of Kings and the Lord of History. God who is incredibly patient with those people that he chooses to be his own, didn't turn his back on them when they turned theirs on him. Instead, again and again, he sent prophets to them, warning them of the perils of disobedience and calling them back to himself, always assuring them of his mercy. 
The first of the Hebrew kings was Saul. The second was David. The third was David's son, Solomon. Solomon's reign was the most opulent of them all. His extravagant family life and elaborate estates are well known to the students of both history and the scriptures. In fact, bearing out Samuel's warnings about the enormous cost of a central, powerful government, at the end of Solomon's reign, there was a tax revolt that resulted in the division of the kingdom into two, Judah and Israel. At the peak of Solomon's glorious but burdensome reign, the Lord came to his people. And he reminded them once again of the secret to secure borders and joyful living. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. These words need to resonate frequently in the halls of the church of Jesus Christ as his people gather to sing his praises in whatever land they might find themselves. And these words need to remind us that the ultimate power to influence the life and security of a nation doesn't lie in any man, in any political party, in any political action committee or voting block. It rests in the hands of our God. Whatever else this means, it means that you and I are obliged by our faith in Jesus Christ to conduct ourselves as his servants and as his children. Paul said, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This counsel from the word of God applies to every part of our lives, including our political thinking and discussions, our prayers and decisions on behalf of our nation. You and I are called to think and to speak and to pray and to vote as informed, dedicated Christian people. This is easier said than done for a number of reasons. One of them is our tendency to compartmentalize the various elements of life. We do this with our time. Whatever our differing views of the Sabbath might be, we all understand that Sunday belongs to God, or at least an hour on Sunday plus travel time coming and going. And on that day or in that hour, we honor God by joining other Christian believers and singing his praises and praying and reflecting on his word. But the rest of the week, we tend to regard as our own to be used according to our own wishes. And most of us feel little compulsion to consult with God about the stewardship of our time. We compartmentalize the use of our money. We accept it as a duty and a privilege to support the work of the church of Jesus Christ. From time to time, we give serious, prayerful consideration to this part of Christian living. We reflect on the fullness of the Lord's provision for us. We take the measure of the church's needs, and as a result, we give accordingly and we give gladly. But like our time, we consider what's left as our own to be used as we wish. And only rarely do we feel the need to ask for God's guidance about the means that he has placed in our hands. And so it is with politics. 
Too many Christians assume that there's no necessary link between our faith in Christ and our political views. They don't consult the scriptures before they decide which car to purchase. They don't pray before they make their vacation plans, and they leave God at the door when they step into the polling place. Another reason that it's easier said than done that we should involve the Lord in every aspect of our lives, including politics, is the fact that each of us has a personal political tradition. Many of us grew up in unbelieving or religiously passive homes. There was little or no prayer. There was little or no religious discussion. If we went to church, there was precious little evidence that this was anything but a cultural exercise. But almost all of us grew up in political homes. Those of us who can't say with certainty that our parents were Christians know for sure whether they were Republicans or Democrats. Long before we used to learn to use the name of Jesus Christ with joy and reverence, we learned the names of politicians that our fathers and mothers supported or hated. And this means that when we became adults, and this means that when we became thinking Christians, the deck of political thought was already stacked against us. And this is a handicap that some are never able to overcome. A third reason that it's hard for us to think objectively as believers about politics is the fact that in the church, and to some extent in the wider community, liberals and conservatives both like to believe and say that Jesus sits on their side of the aisle. Liberals quote the scriptures. Blessed are the poor becomes their social policy. Give to him who asks you is their position on taxation. Turn the other cheek expresses their foreign policy. But conservatives do the same thing. Their social policy is shaped by Paul's words, if a man will not work, he shouldn't eat. Foreign relations are shaped by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they tend to misappropriate passages that relate to Israel by making them apply to the United States of America. And this confusion, often from the mouths of people who are respected, makes it hard for Christian people to know exactly how their faith should relate to their politics and easier to make political decisions on grounds other than our faith and the scriptures. But in spite of our tendency to compartmentalize various elements of life, in spite of the strong family traditions that influence our thinking, in spite of the confusing claims that are often made, we need to try to rise above the fray to step aside from the traditions that bind us and consider the choices that stand before us as a people committed above all else to the Lord of history. We should begin by being thankful and saying so for the role that the Christian religion has played in the development of America and its character. We discussed this last week. And today, although that influence is obviously waning, in times of her greatness, the United States was closer to being a Christian nation than any other. Knowing this should make us as Christians very grateful. Knowing this should make us especially careful in forming our political philosophy and cautious in expressing that philosophy 
in our conversations and in places of voting. Secondly, we need to keep in mind that the ultimate security of America doesn't rest in the strength of its military. An ancient believer looked at the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem, derived from them a momentary sense of security, but then he wrote, I lift up mine eyes unto the hills, but from whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in the 20th Psalm, we find this testimony. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. That we need an adequate military is obvious, but to us as the redeemed children of God, it should be equally obvious that if America's role in history is reaching its end, no arms can save her. And if God wills for that role to continue, no force on earth can conquer her. We need chariots. We need horses. But above all else, America needs the Lord. And thirdly, as concerned as we are about the state of the economy, and as aware as we might be of the limited ability of the federal government to influence the economy, we need to remember that in the scriptures, the economic health of a nation is primarily linked to the respect of its people for God and for his law. We remember the unexpected prosperity of Abraham in Egypt and of Jacob's with Laban's family in Haran. We recall how Israel became most well, most, both wealthy and powerful in the land of the Pharaohs, and that one of the promises of God found at the end of his law is that he would bless the flocks and the herds and the fields and the orchards of those who were obedient to him. This means that in the minds of Christian people, there are issues that should transcend concerns about the economy as they reflect on political opportunity and responsibility. And finally, if the key to a nation's security and the robustness of its economy is linked to its stance toward God and obedience to his revealed will, this means that the most important issues of this and every other election campaign are religious and moral. If we look at the two major candidates for president in this election, we find that neither of them would be acceptable for membership in this church. One of them is identified with a religious body that most evangelicals consider a cult, while the roots of the other are in a church, the theology and values of which are so radical that it would be straining language beyond recognition to call it Christian. Religiously, then, it's a draw. To the extent that religious agreement is important to us, neither of these men would receive our vote. But when we make moral comparisons of statements issued either by the candidates or by their parties, the issues become much more clear. While in some cases we have legitimate grounds on which to question its sincerity, the one party makes frequent references to God while the other had to take a floor vote on whether to include the name of God in its platform, and the measure barely passed. One of the two candidates supports the right of a pregnant woman to take the life of her unborn child, 
while the other has changed his mind about this important moral issue and now opposes abortion. One side seeks, but one side is in favor of legalizing gay marriage. The other opposes it. Now, let me remind you that these are not matters of ethical minutia. These are not the footnotes to history of the age through which we pass. From the beginning of our nation's history, we have recognized the rightful place of God in our thinking and lives. To vote against including his name in the platform of a political party is to confess that those opposed to that inclusion have already eliminated God from their thoughts and their values. To treat abortion as the moral equivalent of wart removal is to deny the supernatural origin of human life and to place the desires of a person above the purposes of God. And to advocate the legalization of gay marriage is to declare the gay lifestyle legitimate. It is a fundamental challenge to the most essential building block of this or any other society, and that is the marriage covenant that binds a man to a woman. Every Sunday, we read together from the scriptures. We do this not because the Bible is a religious relic to which we attach some superstitious importance. We do that because we believe that the Bible is the word of God, inspired by his spirit, protected through the ages, brought intact to us, that it might become the foundation of our religious beliefs, of our moral values, and even our political thinking. It speaks very clearly about the moral issues that today divide our land. May it be a light on our path as we make our way toward Tuesday. Let us pray. Our Father, remind us that what we do as a nation is important to you. Remind us that how we assume the privileges and the responsibilities of citizenship needs to be thoroughly, thoroughly immersed in our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, in our understanding of his ways. May it be so among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.